We're saying hallelujah. Chapter 19 kind of starts off with this shout of hallelujah. And um, we've got rejoicing going on in heaven because, because of the collapse, the absolute rapid collapse of what we're calling the, the beasts, the, the political system, the economic system that has supported uh, Satan. God has come against it. And in heaven, you have this sense of absolute rejoicing. Okay? And what I'll remind us of is this, this section has taken us into what we call that, that half a time uh, on planet Earth as we move to the very last day in history. And, and what, what, what you see in contrast is um, if you're alive during that period of time, when that collapse happens so rapidly, probably your first instinct is not going to be to shout hallelujah. I mean, honestly, it probably will not be. Why? Because we're human beings. And as much as we, we want to say, but I belong to Jesus Christ, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world, as much as we want to say that, because we're flesh and blood, we're stuck in this world, right? And, and every day what the Holy Spirit is doing is taking you and I and pulling us out of it, right? We wake up every morning, our old Adam wakes up, and we want to enjoy a little bit of this world. And this Holy Spirit goes, let go of that, let go of that, let go of that, right? So when that collapse happens, and uh, you go from saying, my retirement is secure, I get my Social Security check, I, I, I can look ahead and things look good, to guess what, all that's gone like that. Your first instinct is not going to be, hallelujah! Your first instinct is going to be, Oh, what now, right? Okay. In heaven, what you hear is hallelujah, right? There's no hesitation. On earth, it's us going, now what? In that moment, I really believe you and I to the core are challenged to know what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. To be able to say, wait a minute. You're right. This whole thing is just collapsing I have peace. Why? Because I know what's happening. I know who holds this day in his hands, and I know that what he is doing is right and good, and I know exactly where it's going to take us. I, I trust in this Lord Jesus Christ until my last breath. Okay? Um, what I don't think we need to be doing as, as Christians is living in fear of that day or stockpiling for that day. Um, you know, the, 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 the Mormon church, more than any group of people on planet Earth, are looking at that day, and right now, they are stockpiling away because, by golly goes, when that day comes, we're going to be ready for it. We're going to come over here. I'm going to, yeah, but you forgot something. In the world, not of the world, but for the world. How should we be spending our time? Not stockpiling and pulling back, but going out into the world and saying, come to know Jesus Christ, because in the end, it's not going to be about, do you have enough meat to eat? It's going to be about, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Because that half a time period will go very rapidly. So think about this as you start chapter 19. This is the loud voice of the great multitude shouting out, hallelujah, saying salvation and glory and power belong to God, his judgments, this is his judgment, are true and they are right. They are, they are just. 
he has judged the great prostitute and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Okay? So let's go to verse 3 and pick up from there. It says, Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up, Ionios, Ionios, forever and ever. There's a little bit of a play that's going on here that, that I think of uh, when I look at this. Um, you know, back in that day, if you could pick up a Roman coin and, and look at it. Remember the day the disciples asked Jesus, you know, should we pay taxes to, to Trump? You remember when they asked him that Or not Trump, I mean Caesar. What was I thinking about? Yeah. <laughs> Must we pay taxes to Hillary? You know, I mean, so, um, and Jesus, what did he say? Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You know, how would you translate that? I, I translate it as, there's two kingdoms. And that's the kingdom of the world. And as evil as the ruler is, and Caesar was evil, I established the government to play a particular role, and it's, it's going to play that role, even with an evil emperor. I still will work through that. Okay? Because the government is not going to save you. It's not going to fix your ills, your problems. So yeah, give them the coin. If you could have looked at that coin, one of the words imprinted on that coin is this word, eternitas. Eternitas. And as a Roman, what I would say to you is that you had these rulers, uh, these emperors who you're, you're giving your coins to, who would say, we're divinities. We are divinities. And Rome will last eternitas, forever. Rome is forever. Okay, uh, I think we kind of live that way in, in the United States, right? Um, who would ever dream that there would be a day when the United States would be uh, not the world power, not the, the significant power, when it would fall? We, we, no, that would never, that couldn't possibly happen. Eternitas, right? Well, look at the wordplay that's going up. The smoke from her... Because what's just collapsed? The whole economy system is that. The smoke from her goes up. Here's the Greek word, ionios. Contrast with eternitas. And what, what's being said there is, oh, no, no, no. You don't hold forever in your hand, Rome. Wrong kingdom. Well, there's a kingdom that lasts ionios forever and ever, but it's the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom that will last forever and ever. While your smoke will go up, your smoke will go up. Your destruction will go up forever and ever. The kingdom of God will last forever and ever. Your destruction will last forever and ever. So you see that contrast of the collapsed, the collapsed condition of the, uh, the human uh, institutions. Uh, verse 24 says, Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures uh, did something. They fell down and they worshipped God who was seated on his throne. Just an, an image of we're now coming prostrate before you, acknowledging that this, this kingdom of yours that lasts forever, you are, you, are the, you are the king over it, and we are completely subject to you. That, that's the nature of worship. Is um, we, we really have it very, very backwards in the United States. Um, the very heart of worship, if you, look at, if you look at the word for worship here, it's proskuneo. And so I want you to hear this word in English, prostrate. Proskuneo. Prostrate. 
If I said to you, I want you to become prostrate right now, what would you do? Get out of your chair, lay flat down. What, what are you physically saying when you do that? I surrender completely to you. Okay. Now think of the nature of worship. The nature of worship is to come into the presence of God and to say, I surrender all of me to you. Okay. Um, I, I desire that your, your word and your will have, have, have rule in my life. I surrender my desires. I surrender my wants. I surrender my needs. I surrender completely to you. I desire what you desire to, to do in my life right now. T take me. Use me. We have songs like that, right? I surrender all. Okay. But do we? That's the nature of worship. Now, here's what it sounds like in the Western America. What can I get out of worship? What is for me? I don't like that. I didn't want that. See what I mean? See the contrast there? Worship is not about, okay, I'm going to come into some place and I, I got to get all this stuff out of it. It's a matter of I'm coming to give all of me to you. And the nature of worship then is this word of God begins to work on me. And what is it doing? It's taking me out of my dependence on this world and my desire for this world. And it's saying, no, look, let go of that. Let go of that. Instead, let the predominance of what God desires have rule in your life. That's the picture here is those who are in heaven, they don't hesitate. They don't stop. When this collapse happens, they don't go, now what are we going to do? They go, hallelujah. And they, they lay down before God and they say, we belong entirely to you, always have. And there's no hesitation in heaven. And I think this picture is given to us on earth to, to cause us to stop and go, now wait a minute, what are we doing here on earth? We're trying to hang on to this world. And we're trying to tell God, I want this, I want this, I want this. We're not surrendering to him. And that picture is just, no, let God lead you to this place of absolute surrender to you because it's out of that surrender that you're able to say on that day, hallelujah, right along with the saints, right along with them, okay? Um, I, think this is, I think this next phrase is interesting. As they lay down and they cry out, hallelujah, there's a voice, it says, that comes from the throne. And the voice says, praise our God, all of you, his doulos. I'm going to come back to that word. Praise our God, all of you, his doulos, you who fear him, both small and great. Okay? Um, why, why can I surrender all? Why must I surrender all? Why must I come before God and say, um, I, I, I'm entirely yours and, and out of that I can shout hallelujah because I'm a doulos. And at, at Easter time, I think this has particular uh, significance. Let me, let me just take this word for you, okay? Do loss, and let's let's play with it for just a minute. How many of you can remember sermons that you heard as a child, as a kid, and they stuck with you to this day? Any of you remember a, a message or something a pastor said that came from your youth? Any of you? Kind of part of you? Most sermons don't, yeah, that's right, stomp on the bugs on the floor, all right, okay. You know, most sermons, people say, well, sermons are like, 
or like uh, what you ate for lunch six weeks ago. You don't remember, right? But it filled you up. It, it gave you nourishment for that, that week. But there's some that will stick in you. I mean, this God does it. He did right, right word, right time. When I was a little kid, there was, there was one message that I've just always remembered. And it was just a little story. And it was a story of this kid who, you know, was out taking this, this little boat that he had made and sailing it on a little pond. And uh, I remember a pastor saying, you know, he'd made this boat, and it was, it was his prized possession. He put it in the water, and the winds got up, and the got, boat got away, and he ran down the shore to try to get it, but he couldn't get it, and the boat got lost, went home without it. And uh, he told his mom and dad, we've got to get that boat. Well, they went back to find it, couldn't find it. And uh, after... You know, weeks of looking for it and putting up signs. If you found this boat, they gave up. Until one day they were walking, you know, down the street and there on the front, front uh, window of a store was his boat. A little sign in front of it, for sale. And uh, so into that store, his mom and dad took him and um, his dad said, how much is that boat? And the guy says, well, it's so much money. And the little boy says, but dad, that's my boat. I built that boat. I made that boat. Why do you, you don't have to pay for it. No, son, it's, it's not our boat anymore. It's, it's his boat. And uh, dad took out his wallet and put the money down and handed his son the boat. And I've always remembered that story because, I, I mean, it just captures the essence of, of Easter and this word doulos. Um, praise our God, all you his doulos. Okay. Um, the, the whole point of the story, I think you, I don't really have to say a lot about it, is that, you know, God created us. He made us. We're His, right? Uh, Colossians 1 says, I, Jesus made us for Himself, to belong to Him, to be with Him. What happens when Adam and Eve break God's will is God's judgment takes place and it is just. Because he's told them, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. And he's not, he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. So when they eat of that fruit, that, that consequence, that curse must be placed upon him for God to be just. God can't say, well, yeah, well, forget. No, he's a just God. He says, no, now you must die. Physical death enters the world. Spiritual death enters the world. What is spiritual death? Well, it's nothing short of the reality that in that moment, Adam and Eve break God's will. They no longer belong to him. Legally, they belong to Satan. The same thing is true of all human beings born of Adam, born of the blood of man. We come into this world, and though God made us, we don't belong to him. We are owned because of our sin by our enemy. Okay? So what, what is the cross? The cross is this moment in history looked forward to since the promise given to Adam and Eve fulfilled now where, where Jesus Christ says, what does it cost to buy them back? 
I made them. They belong to me. Now, now they no longer belong to me. What must be paid to, to buy them back? The penalty of death. The penalty for their sin. I will pay it. That's the cross. That's what we celebrate on Easter morning, right? So that when he purchases us back, when you come into faith, there's an exchange that takes place of ownership, right? I was owned by Satan. I am now owned by Jesus Christ. In some ways, you and I can say we're twice owned. Made, made by him and for him. Lost in sin, re redeemed by him on the cross of Jesus Christ. This term doulos, which in your Bibles is translated servants, means slave. Okay? So if, if our English Bibles were, were actually just transposing the right English words, here's the way it would sound. It say, a voice from the throne came saying, praise our God, all you his slaves. That's how it would read. We soften the word and just say servants. Okay? I don't like to soften it because I think it has theological meaning. Who is giving praise to God? All of those who legally belong to him, purchased by him. It's what we celebrate on Easter. It's us coming together saying, do I belong to myself? No. That's why the nature of worship is surrender. Who do you belong to? The one who bought me, has full rights over me. And so the praise is going up then from not only the creatures that are before the throne, in other words, heavenly beings, but from you and I who recognize who we are, small and great, small and great, we are the ones who now lift up this, this, uh, this voice and say, okay, God, at the moment of this destruction, as we now enter into this half a time, while all of humanity is scrambling and saying, what are we going to do? Our voice is the voice on earth that says, praise God. Now he is working out his judgment amongst men, and I belong to him. That belonging to him is now spelled out in an intimate way. I'm going to take you to a couple of places because I think there's some depth in this. The next sound that, that John hears is, is um, kind of reminiscent of the way that the book of Revelation begins. If you remember, John is, is hearing the voice of God. He's hearing the voice of angels. But when he hears God, there's times in the Revelation where his voice sounds like trumpets, right? Well, why? Why does that sound like a trumpet? Because it's the last sound that we're going to hear on planet Earth in history, right? I will come again with the, the shout of the archangel and the sound of a trumpet. Sometimes his voice sounds like this. Look, look at what it says, verse 6. Then I heard, it seemed to be like a voice of a great multitude, like, like a lot of voices. <clears throat> you know those little machines you can get and you talk through and it changes your voice? Well, imagine that a voice that sounds like a lot of voices, that makes up one voice. Why is that true? Because the voice that's going to be speaking is the voice not just of God, but of all those who belong to him now. Uh, the ones just described, his douloi, his, his, his slaves. It was also like the roar of many waters and the sound of peals of thunder. Okay? The roar of many waters. Where does that take you in history? The sea parts, right? And so where, where is this, this voice going to take us? 
into the promised land. Not the not physical promised land, but what? Eternity with God. Now that's what John is hearing. All the multitude of voices, all those who are going to go with God through the waters into the new promised land. And like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder, okay, takes us now to a place called Sinai. And this is kind of interesting. I don't know if you'll make this connection or not, but, but just walk with me on this. When Moses goes up to Sinai, remember, remember what, what he knows is you, you can't look on the face of God or you'll die, right? The people below know you don't even touch this mountain or you'll die. Moses has been called into the presence of God. So he goes up to Sinai. He sees the backside of or the shadow of God and he hears God deliver to him what we call the Ten Commandments amongst sounds of thunder. Now here's what, here's what the Hebrew text says. It says, Dabar Elohim Debarim. Here's that literally, literally translated. When Moses is in the presence of God, he says, Elohim, God, the bar, spoke Debarim, his words, Lachai, of life. So today we say, we have the Ten Commandments. You hear as a Westerner that word commandment, and I think of my dog. Sit, <laughs> come, stop throwing up. It's bad when they do that. You know, I mean, we, we have commands that we give it up. So we, we, neg we negatively look at the Ten Commandments like, oh man, there's God. Don't, don't do that. Whoa, whoa, don't do that. No, 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 don't do that. That's not the, the right picture. The barahim, dabrim, lachai. God speaks words of life. God says, I'm going to give you a word that will fill you up with life, that will bring you joy, peace, prosperity, well-being as you go into this new land. These words will cause you to live as a community with phenomenal joy. All right, you see the difference? Don't do that, don't do that. No, no, words to give you what? Joy and peace in life. Now, transpose yourself in history all the way to the time that John, who's writing the Revelation, is first moved by God to write his gospel. How does he start? In the beginning was the Word. Who is the living incarnate words of life? Jesus Christ. And so when you picture that little voice machine again, John is hearing this, this voice speak to him. The images are telling you something. Sound of many people, many voices, all the people, rushing water, who are going to go into the land of promise to live, to dwell with the word himself, Jesus Christ. See the picture? All just caught up in this one moment when John hears it, but the hearing of it is pointing to the meaning of it. We're going now into eternity. That's what he's pointing to. What do the voices say? This gives me shivers. I just love this. Hallelujah. Again, repeat it. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God 
the Almighty reigns. Okay? Is that how your ears reads? For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. I kind of pulled this apart. Um, I was looking at this again. It's really interesting. The word for Almighty here has, again, kind of this, this significance to it, um, pointing to where we're going, right? So we say, Almighty, you're Almighty God. You know, like, okay, you're, you're Superman, Batman God, you know? Um, but the, wor the word here actually is Pantocrator. And, and if I literally translate it, I actually wouldn't say Almighty. I would say the one who made everything. The owner of it all. So, so it changes a little bit, doesn't it? Hallelujah for the Lord God, the one who made it all. The one who owns it all. Go back to the word doulos. Who owns me? He does. The Lord God, the one who made it all. Who did he make you for? Himself, right? There's an intimacy to it. God is not a malevolent owner. He doesn't say, I own you. You better do this. He says, I own you. I love you. I paid for you twice. I made you once. I paid for you again, right? And then it says he reigns. And, and that's an interesting word too. The word reigns here is abasalesum. And it really means he, he kings or he kingdoms, okay? So if you think about it, we're, we're living right now in a time where the kingdom of God is present. How is it present? In an invisible way. You can't see it. So, so Martin Luther made this distinction. He says, if you, if you look at the world, there's always at the same time two things, the visible church and the invisible church. And the visible church is the kingdom. The kingdom consists of all those people who are douloi, servants, or owned by Jesus Christ. But with, together with those douloi are weeds. Whoops. Not in the church. No, no, in the church. Yes, in the church today are people who belong to, literally are owned by Jesus Christ, and those who are not, side by side. Remember the parable? Well, when are we going to pull the weeds? Let's pull them now. God says, no, we'll be pulled at the end time. Okay. So Luther would always say, in the invisible church is the body of, body of Christ on earth. Not, no one can see it except through faith. Through faith, you are able to see, here is the kingdom of God at, at work. The, the, vis, the visible church and the invisible church are, are side by side. When we go into the, to the new land or the new earth, crossing across, we would say in the new land as we come across, we shout hallelujah for the Lord, the one who made it all, who owns me, is now kingdoming. And the kingdom is now both physical as well as spiritual, right? It's visible now. On the new earth, you, the weeds are pulled, right? You simply have those who belong to Jesus Christ who will live and dwell together uh, forever. And that's, that's really what, what we're hearing here is that we're pointing to that moment now as, as eternity uh, begins. So what should we do? He says, let us rejoice and exult. Let us rejoice and exult. The word for rejoice has, a, has, a, has kind of an interesting core to it. Uh, in the Greek, it's kairoin. And uh, we take this word kairos, um, 
we actually have a symbol for it. And you've seen this symbol before, right? The kairos looks like that, right? Like a P with an X through it. You've seen it before? Well, the P is actually an R and the, the X is actually a chi, kairos, pointing to Jesus Christ himself. And in it, the core in it is, it means grace. Grace of Jesus Christ, okay? So when we say we rejoice, we're actually gracing in the presence of Jesus Christ. We're living under the tent of his grace for eternity, we're recognizing who we are. I belong to him. Why? Not because of what I've done, but because of what? What he did on the cross. And we rejoice in that. We give thanks for what he's done on the cross. The second word uh, is the word exult. And uh, this is one of those non-Lutheran words uh, that you find in Scripture. Um, the word exult uh, you could get thrown out of a Lutheran church if you exalt too much. You, you, guys know, you guys got close this morning running around with those palm branches, shaking those things. I saw you. You're starting to exalt a little bit. Got a story here. Um, <clears throat> exalt really is that. It's, it's not just a rejoice. You, you, you ever ask yourself this question, like if, like if a visitor just walked into the church, like, who are you people? Well, we're worshiping Jesus. Well, who is he? Well, he's our Lord and Savior. Okay. Um, are you glad he's your Savior? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Fine. I, sometimes I wonder about us. I really do. Um, exulting is, is what? It's release. Just full out. I can't believe that I belong to you and that all this you've given to me. There's an exultation. My favorite story, <clears throat> my favorite exalt story, takes me back a few years. Um, I hadn't lived in Nebraska very long, and I wanted to go study some churches <clears throat> around the country. One of them I wanted to study was uh, called the Crystal Cathedral. It's in California. So um, believe it or not, however God did this, he hooked me up with my study partner on all my trips was this guy from Kearney. And... Uh, uh, pastor by the name of Dennis Hyden. Well, Dennis, Dennis, when he was in Kearney, had to be really careful about everything he said or did because there were some, there were some pastors at that time in Kearney who uh, didn't care for liberal churches. And they thought his church was kind of liberal. Um, kind of like this church, this palm-waving, crazy church. We got dogs in this church. I'm just crazy. <laughs> so Dennis... Dennis, we're in the Crystal Cathedral, and, um, and they have television cameras. You know, and he goes, oh, they got television cameras. And I'm like, yeah, they got television cameras. I wonder if those people in Carney will see you. He's like, oh, no. And I go, I'm like, I'm like hallelujah. He goes, put your hands down. <laughs> put your hands down right now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Just a little exalting right there. But I want you to see that picture there. There's this, this sense of rejoicing and exalting and giving to God the ducks of the glory. There's his, his presence. We're saying, God, we have come before you. We can't believe you've given us this. Now, here's the, here's, this, is, this has some depth to it. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. 
I'll start us on this, and then we're going to pick this back up. Think about this. The very first miracle in the Bible is recorded, not by Matthew, not by Mark, not by Luke, but by John. It's not a synoptic. It's, it's not included in all four Gospels, but John pulls it out. This is John writing. Make the connection. What's the first miracle? Jesus turns water into wine. Okay. And so a lot of times people ask the question, well, why, why would that be the first miracle? I mean, here's all these people with all these problems, people that are blind, people that are lame, people that have all these things. Why, would, why wouldn't Jesus, for his first miracle, start healing people? Why does he, just, why does he turn water into wine? And it's, it's really not about the, just the wine, right? It's about the imagery that goes together with the wine and what the whole of it means. It's a marriage, right? What does Jesus come in the world to do? To prepare his bride for what? The wedding, the marriage. And what Jesus knows is, um, this is going to cost me my life, Right? And so as he, as he takes that, that water and turns it into wine, something significant is happening. He's making a statement amongst the people. They, the people there miss the whole thing. They're like, ooh, man, this is really good wine. How, why did you save the best for last? Because that's what's getting ready to happen. The best will happen last. I have come to get you ready for that last, to get you ready for the wedding that's going to take place. And what must you do to get ready? Put me on. I will be your garment. Now you're back in the garden, aren't you? That day that Adam and Eve sinned, who comes into the garden with them? God. What's his first act? Kill an animal. Strip it of its skin and cover them. Now Jesus comes again and says, I'm going to cover you. Just like I covered Adam and Eve, I'm going to cover you with my blood, the blood of the cross. And when you put on that wedding garment, now you're prepared for the wedding feast that will take place at the end of time. It's always God who gets his bride ready. Jesus spoke of this in a parable in Matthew chapter 22 when he calls out to his nation, Israel. I want you to be my bride. And the bride commits whoredom and departs from him. And so he says, okay, my bride has left me. Go out into the streets and the highways and the byways and bring in those who are hungry. I'll clothe them. And you remember how that parable ends? That parable ends in kind of a significant way. Jesus comes and he's got all these people from all these different places people that the church would call sinners, God says, but look, they're clothed. They're wearing the clothing. They symbolize those who have now come to know him as their Lord and Savior. And there's one person, remember this, who's not wearing the clothing. And Jesus says, who are you? He says, well, I, I, I came to the wives and invited to the wedding. You're not wearing the clothing. Jesus says, cast them out. Cast them out. And so what this is pointing us to is, as we go through those waters into this new land, the multitude, we go clothed, prepared by God for the wedding. We become the bride. He becomes the groom. 
there is an intimacy to it that points to life that, frankly, I cannot fully comprehend, nor, nor can you. None of us will. What does it mean to have that kind of intimacy with God, that you have him dwell with you on an earth, where there is no crying and tears and death and sorrow, but there's him and there's joy? What does that life look like? We're going to get a little bit more into that as we, as we get into these, these last two chapters of Revelation. But, but here he's pointing to it. The marriage of the Lamb has come. I want to pick this back up next week because I want to take you over to an Old Testament passage that I think just gives a richness to what it means to belong. Oh, it won't be next week. Next week's Easter. We're going to do what Lutherans do and eat food. Okay. Well, the next week, because it has, gives a richness to what this, this preparation of the bride looks like. Let's pray. Lord God, as we